It is Monday Thursday, or as I said, maybe we should call this Mandate Thursday or New Commandment Thursday. That may be a little clearer for us as uh, English speakers. This is the day to remember what happened on that Thursday night of what we call Holy Week or Passion Week. It's the day to remember and commemorate what happened in the upper room the night Jesus was betrayed. This is the eve of Jesus' crucifixion. One of the great things about Monday Thursday is we get this annual reminder of that night, that night when Jesus was handed over to be crucified, that night when he gave this new commandment. That means once a year, you're going to get a sermon, you're going to get a service that really focuses on this command to love one another, this need that we have for Christian community, uh, this calling that we have to be community towards one another, to love one another as Christ has loved us. You can really think of the whole week, really from Palm Sunday all the way through Easter Sunday, as one extended liturgy. That's even really how the Gospels present it to us as one continuous event, one continuous narrative, all focused on how Jesus achieves our salvation through his death and resurrection, and indeed how he forms the church through his death and resurrection. Uh, that, that, that whole week is really one extended liturgy. It's not an accident that the events here take place in an upper room. This is a liturgical event. You can think of that upper room. It's, it's kind of like being on a mountaintop, or maybe we could even say like being in heaven. Uh, this takes place in a heavenly kind of environment, in the upper room. Now, in that upper room, several very significant things happen. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He announces that they're clean, but they still must have their feet washed. He announces his betrayer. He shares a Passover meal with his disciples, and he transforms that old covenant feast into the new covenant ritual, the new covenant rite, the new covenant feast that we call the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, or the communion meal. And of course, in that upper room, he gives extensive teaching, teaching that largely focuses on what Jesus will do for his disciples after he departs from them, and after he sends them the Holy Spirit and of course, teaching that also covers what he wants his disciples to do in return, in response, as they follow him. Towards the end of John chapter 13, we have that fundamental foundational command that he gives to his disciples. Verse 34, a new command I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That command to love... Uh, we might ask, well, what's new about it? Uh, God has already commanded his people to love one another, to, to love uh, their neighbors. God, you can find that command given explicitly as far back as Leviticus, at least, uh, a command to love. So we might ask, what's new about it? What makes it new? Well, I think it, it's really explained right there in that context. What is new about this new command to love one another? Well, Jesus says to love one another as I have loved you. The as I have loved you part really explains what's new about this commandment. Because now Jesus has come. And Jesus in his ministry is providing a new model for what love looks like. What sacrificial love looks like as he washes their feet. And of course ultimately as he goes to the cross. Now that God's love has come to us in his son. 
Now that love has been incarnated in Jesus Christ, the command to love that's been there all along, that command to love now has been deepened and intensified and indeed transformed. This love command is to be the identifying and defining mark of the church. As we fulfill this command, we show ourselves and we we prove to the world that we really are his disciples. Who are the followers of Jesus? They are the people who love one another as Jesus has loved them. That is the defining mark of the church. Certainly this love uh, in its fullest and truest expression includes feelings of affection. But whether feelings are there or not, love can manifest itself because this love is especially seen in action. Love is as love does. And that's what you see here. So in verse 35, Jesus says, this is how others will know you are my disciples, by how you love one another. Just as Jesus is the love of God made visible, he is the love of God incarnate, the love of God embodied, the love of God in action. So the church is to be a visible manifestation of this same kind of love. The church is to be this love in action, this love embodied, this love incarnated in our community. Jesus says, this is how others will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. See, Jesus gave his followers, he gave his church a mission statement, a mission statement to disciple the nations, to to take this good news, this gospel of God's love and the death and resurrection of Jesus out to the nations and to disciple the nations in this love. Well, that's a command, obviously, that can't be fulfilled by an individual. Fulfilling that mission, carrying out that mission, takes a community. Well, what makes that community work? What's going to give this community success in its mission? It is love. It is as we partner together in love as a community that the mission is fulfilled. This love is our witness to the world that we are his disciples. And as we love one another, the world is drawn to this love and drawn into Christ's kingdom. This love obviously builds cohesion within the Christian community, within the church. It strengthens our internal bonds. It strengthens those bonds of friendship and fellowship within the church, but it's also crucial to our mission, to reaching those external to the church. Only a church full of love can reach out in love to the world. If we don't love one another, we can't love the world. If we don't love our fellow Christian, we certainly can't love the non-Christian. If we're not manifesting that love, there's no reason reason why the non-Christian should listen to us or hear our testimony, hear our witness. Now, what does it mean for this love to define the church? To answer that question, we really have to understand what the church is. And these are things that are always true, but I think there are things that maybe in the last year, the COVID crisis has especially exposed. Thankfully, we have not lived in a state that has had a really hard lockdown like a lot of other places. But lockdowns across the country have raised a really interesting question. And we've all heard this question asked. The question is, what is essential? If we're going to have a lockdown because of a virus, we have to know what's essential, what gets locked down and what doesn't. The lockdowns across the country have raised this question, the whole issue of what is essential, what kind of jobs are essential, what kind of workers are essential, and of course, what kinds of institutions are essential. It's raised the question, is the church essential? Well, how do you think Jesus himself would answer that question? Is the church essential? 
If you were to put that question to Jesus, he would say, yes, absolutely. I would not have died for a non-essential community. It is absolutely essential. In fact, the church is the essential community. It is the most essential institution of them all. Because the church is the fruit of Christ's death and resurrection. The church is the manifestation of God's love, of Jesus' love in the world. The church exists because Jesus went to the cross. The church has a mission because Jesus went to the cross. The church is now his agent carrying out this mission in the world. And so we must say, yes, the church is essential. And it is indeed essential for the church to gather. It is essential for the church to gather. In all but the most extreme of situations where we are clearly providentially hindered, it is essential for the church to meet. And this is because by definition, the church is a community that gathers together. That's actually what the word church means. The word church, the the Greek term ekklesia, means assembly. It means a, a gathering. If that word church means assembly, then for the church to exist, properly speaking, the assembly must assemble. The assembly must assemble to be what it is. It's interesting how we find this reflected all through Scripture. Uh, I think one of the best places we can go to see this is Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, we are commanded to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Because if we were to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, we're not a church anymore because that's what a church is, the assembling together of Christ's disciples. Assembling is the most foundational thing there is for the church to do because it's what the church is, an assembly. It's what that word church means. Now, I think one of the reasons why so many Christians gave up on the church Uh, so easily during COVID is because a lot of American Christians have never really seen the church as essential to begin with. So it didn't take a whole lot for a lot of American Christians to simply give up on the church. We've had way too low a view of the assembly. Now again, understand, there are certainly legitimate reasons for missing church at times. I'm, I'm not saying that there are no reasons for missing church. There are, or for not having services even, not having the gathering or the assembly. That certainly can be the case. There's no question about that. But in general, I agree with Grayson Gilbert when he says, church should be your excuse for missing everything else. Instead of making excuses to miss church, church should be our excuse for missing everything and anything else. That is to say, this is the community, this is the gathering, this is the meeting, this is the assembly that should always take priority. It should never be, well, let's go to church unless something more fun to do comes along. Or let's go to church unless it turns out it's not really convenient to go this week. No, go to church unless you are very clearly hindered by God, by God's providence. Gathered worship is our sacrifice of praise. Do not sacrifice your sacrifice of praise for the sake of other things. Do not sacrifice your sacrifice of praise for the sake of convenience. And in fact, what's interesting to bring Hebrews 10 together with John 13, 
Assembling together is connected to our love for one another. In Hebrews 10, right before telling us, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. If you want to be stirred up to love the brethren, what should you do? If you want to be stirred up to love the brethren as Jesus has loved the brethren, what should you do? Show up to church. Show up to church whenever possible. Gather with the brethren. Because this is how the Christian life is lived. The Christian life is lived out in the weekly rhythm of gathering and scattering. Gathering and scattering. We gather as God's people and then we scatter as God's people. And so think of it this way. Church attendance is not just a duty that you have. It's not just an obligation you have. Church attendance is a ministry. It is a ministry, maybe the most important ministry you have as a Christian. Church attendance is a ministry you have to other members of the body. And it gets right to the heart, not only of what it means to be a Christian, but of what it means to be a human. And in fact, that's because the Christian faith is the true humanism. What is the Christian church? It's the true humanity, the restored humanity. It's where God takes humanity and reforms humanity, remakes humanity into what we should have been all along. The church is essential because community is essential to human life. And so think of the church as gathering like oxygen. You can go without it for a while. Yes, you can't hold your breath. So you can go without oxygen for a while. But if you go without oxygen for too long, you will die. And so it is. I totally understand and I respect the need to protect physical health. No question about that. And and we have, in this church, I think, have always been very clear in communicating to you as our members, it's your decision to make. What kind of steps or precautions you need to, to take to protect your physical health. But in our desire to protect physical health, let us not forget about our spiritual health, which depends so much on the gathering of God's people. Because we were made for fellowship with one another. Community amongst sinners is always going to be difficult, even redeemed sinners. Community is always going to be difficult. But it's so incredibly rewarding because it gets right to the heart of who we are and what we were made for. Community. Church is like family. You can't really live without a family. You can't flourish without a family. You have to have your spiritual family to flourish. We're not just made imago dei, that is in the image of God. Uh, Certainly Genesis tells us that, but we can actually tease out of Scripture. We are made imago trinitas. We are made in the image of the Trinity. And so just as God exists as a communion of persons, God exists as a kind of society or family, three persons, as the one God, the Father and the Son can be distinguished from one another, but the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. And all of this is through the Holy Spirit. We can say father and son are distinct persons, and yet they are one. They share a common life. They share a common nature. God designed the church 
after his own Trinitarian pattern. The Trinity is the archetype, the church is to be the copy. This is the pattern for human life. It's the pattern for the church. In fact, later on that night, that, that, that same night, that Thursday night, when Jesus went out from the upper room, he prayed what is known as his high priestly prayer. And he prayed that the unity of his disciples, not just those living then, but those who would come in the future, that their unity, their oneness, their dwelling in one another would be an image of the way the Father dwells in him and he dwells in the Father. That's what Jesus prayed for. That's what the church is to be because that's really what human life is about. And so spiritual drifters, those who you could say just stick their toes into the, the, the life of the community but never really dive in, are always going to struggle. Always going to struggle, not just because they're separating themselves from the means of grace, but because they're fighting against their own nature as people who were made for community. You simply cannot experience this kind of fellowship if you're a spiritual drifter, just drifting along, never really connecting, never really attaching yourself, never really engaging with a Christian community. See, it's in the church that you find your true community. It's in the church that you find your true self. Your truest community and your truest self will come to expression in the church. And scripture gives us several different ways of thinking about this, several images of the church that illustrate this, particularly in the New Testament. Think about 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul says, we are all one body, the body of Christ. And yet this one body, Paul says, is composed of many members. So in the church, the one and the many are harmonized. One body, many members, each with its own unique spiritual gift, contributing to the gift of the whole. So your individuality is preserved. You've got your own gift that you contribute to the whole. And yet there's one body, one life we all share in. One body we're all members of together, that we've all been joined to together. Each member has his own gift, yet we are all joined together as one. One body, one life, one purpose. In 1 Peter 2, Peter says we are all living stones in the spiritual temple God is building for himself to dwell in. So here you have many stones, one house. 1 Corinthians 12, it's many members, one body. Now in 1 Peter 2, it's many stones, one house. And notice this, I love this imagery. We are stones, not bricks. You know, bricks all look just alike, stones don't. Stones are always different. We're, we're stones, not Legos. You know, Legos, all they all snap together just the same way. Lego blocks are uniform in that kind of way. They always press together in exactly the same way. That's not how the church works. In order for God to bring these living stones together and form them into a house for himself, we have to recognize every stone is unique. Every, stones are like snowflakes. No two stones are just alike. Stones are all Unique. Each one is different from every other one. Each stone is different. And God has to take each one of these stones and he has to mold and shape that stone so it will fit into this building, so it will fit into this house he is cementing together. And so in the church, individuality is preserved. In fact, individuality comes to its truest expression. The church is not like those totalitarian societies that crush the individual and that stamp out any kind of individual uniqueness. And yet in the church, 
There's a real oneness, a real unity, a real communion, a real fellowship, which you will never be able to experience if you only conceive of yourself as a kind of rugged individual, a, a self-made man, a kind of independent Christian. That's why a, a, a churchless Christian is really a contradiction in terms. There's no Lone Ranger Christian out there doing the Christian life all on his own. It's simply impossible. We're stones being assembled together into a living house. We're members of a shared body, a shared life. One of the problems with the lockdowns we've seen over the last year is the way that these lockdowns have disrupted communities and isolated people from one another. And that's true in the church, in places where churches have been tightly locked down, but it's true in all kinds of other ways too. But it's especially with the church that you see it. We know the local church is not a building. Everybody likes to say that. Oh, the church is not a building. That's so true. But again, the church is a gathering of a particular people in a specific locale. You can't get away from that. The church is a gathering and an assembling of people. You know, Zoom is great in its place. I thank God for Zoom. I love that technology. But pixels are no substitute for persons. Wherever two or three are logged in together can never replace wherever two or three are gathered together. It just can't happen. It's just not the same. It's not a substitute. No more than a prosthetic limb would be a substitute for a real limb. I mean, the prosthetic might be great if that's the best you can do, but it's no substitute for the real thing. And, and digital fellowship can never substitute for the real fellowship God calls us to in the church. Some things in life simply cannot be digitized. They cannot be taken online. And church is one of them. And that's why we were always careful to say, this isn't really church. We have to meet online. It's a, it's a Bible study. It's, it's, it's a... It's some kind of gathering, a digital gathering, and we can be thankful if that's the best that we can do at this particular time. But it is not the same as church, because church is an assembly of a particular people in a particular place. We are Christians, not Gnostics. Gnostics would be just fine with a digitized gathering. Gnostics are fine with pixels instead of persons, because the body doesn't really matter. But we're Christians. We believe in a bodily incarnation of God's Son, a bodily crucifixion, and a bodily resurrection. And therefore, we are committed to a bodily gathering with embodied singing and embodied feasting. And the loss of all of that really means the loss of our humanity in a very real way. And it has led in our culture to... Uh, incredibly devastating loneliness. The widespread lockdowns in our country have produced all kinds of loneliness and poverty, increases in abuse, in suicide, in drunkenness, in drug addiction. All of these problems taken together are perhaps as destructive as the virus itself has been, if not more so. The lockdowns themselves have done incalculable damage. What's interesting, though, is I came across an article the other day, and maybe some of you saw this as well. It got a lot of attention when it came out. But I came across an article the other day that had done a survey of the mental health of Americans after roughly a year in lockdown or a year of dealing with COVID. And this study found that while overall... Americans' mental health had sharply declined over the last year. There was one group for whom mental health had actually improved. 
You know what that one group was? Those who attended church weekly. Those who attended church weekly over the last year did not see the same kind of decline, the same kind of trauma, the same kind of problems pop up as those who simply were shut out of fellowship and shut out of communion, those who were isolated. Again, sometimes there are good reasons to not attend. We all know that. Sometimes there are reasons to not attend, but there are always good reasons to attend because of what the church is. I think one reason Christians have been so quick to treat the church as non-essential is because we have this tendency in the American church to believe that the, the, the church exists primarily to meet our felt needs. Church exists to serve me, to serve my felt needs. And so, yes, I'll participate, but only in those ways that help me or only in those ways that I enjoy. And so I'll use church to get my dose of religion every so often whenever I feel like I need it, but otherwise church is not essential to my life. And this really is just the consumerist mentality applied to church. It's consumerism applied to church life. You know, I'll keep shopping at Costco so long as it meets my needs, and I'll stay at my church until I get a better deal elsewhere. And that's kind of how we tend to, to look at it. And of course, many churches respond to that by trying to make church as comfortable and easy and non-threatening as possible. They try to make church the best deal possible to meet as many felt needs as possible with predictably disastrous results. Because you're never going to experience the kind of community we were made for, the kind of community we long for when you keep the church at an arm's length like that and only think of the church in a what's in it for me kind of way. It's not uncommon today for professing Christians to say, I love Jesus, my problem is with the church. How often do you hear that? I love Jesus, it's the, it's the church I can't stand. And in one sense, we might say, well, yeah, that's, that's understandable. Jesus is sinless, and the church is full of sinners. So, of course, the church is difficult in a way that Jesus is not. But in another sense, it's a very real problem because you cannot love Jesus without also loving his body and his bride. You cannot be united to Jesus without being united to his people. How can you be united to Jesus without being a member of his body? Man, how would you like it if someone said, you know, I like you all right, but I really can't stand your wife. Okay, or if they sent you an invitation to dinner and they said, well, bring anyone you want except your wife. Okay. Men typically take such insults against their wives personally, and I can assure you, Jesus does too. Imagine Jesus coming up to you, tapping you on the back of your shoulder and saying, hey, that's my wife you're talking about when you talk bad about the church. Now, of course, the church does err. The church does have all kinds of problems. Of course, the church does need continual correction. And Jesus is not blind to the faults of the church. Jesus knows all of this. He knows all the faults and flaws of the church even better than we do. But Jesus loves her nevertheless. He loves her and he is sanctifying her. And one day he will present her to himself as a bride without spot or wrinkle. And so we have to learn to look at the church, not just for who she is right now, but for who she will be in the end. And we need to understand, too, we are all called to play our part 
in continually maturing and beautifying the church. God wants to use each one of us in rubbing out the spots and smoothing out the wrinkles in the bride of Christ. This new command that Jesus gives us, that we are to love one another as he loves us, really sums up a whole bunch of other commands you find in the New Testament. I would call them the one anothering commands. The commands to one another, one another. All of those one another and commands you find in the New Testament. This is the sum of them, to love one another. Listen to some of these commands we're given in the New Testament. Welcome one another. Care for one another. Agree with one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Teach one another. Do good to one another. Confess to one another. Show hospitality to one another. All of those one anothering commands, and there are more than just those I gave you, but all of those one anothering commands, they're all ways of unpacking what it means to love one another. That's what we're called to do. That's the shape the Christian community should take. That's what our fellowship should look like. Let me wrap this up and and tie things together. On that night, that Thursday night, the night Jesus was betrayed, the night he gathered with his disciples in the upper room, Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment. The context for that new commandment shows us what it's all about. The context for that new command to love one another is really twofold. There's a twofold context for it. The foot washing that Jesus engages in and the meal he shares with them. That shared meal indicates the kind of fellowship Jesus wants to have with us and the kind of fellowship Jesus wants us to have with one another. The church is not just a meeting of the minds. It's not just a mental unity we're called for. It's a unity that arises from and is manifested in our feasting together at the same table. It's an embodied and joyful unity that we're called to share with one another. The church is established by the hospitality of Jesus as he feeds his disciples, as he welcomes them to his table. And we're to continue that pattern by extending hospitality to one another, inviting one another into our homes to share our tables. That's the kind of fellowship we're called to. We see that in the context. The other thing is the foot washing. And Jesus makes it clear, the foot washing is an example for us to follow. He says, I've left you an example. I've given you an example. Blessed are you if you do these things. And think about what Jesus has done. Jesus has all authority. He is their Lord and their teacher. And yet, shockingly, he acts like their slave, stooping to serve them, taking the the lowliest uh, of the low jobs you can do. Jesus, who has the greatest authority, who's about to go back to his Father, who came from glory and who is returning from glory, stoops to serve. Now, if Jesus could humble himself that way, how much more should we be willing to humble ourselves to serve one another? To love as Jesus loves is to follow this example. It means to get over yourself, to get over your rank, your status, to get over how you want things to look, and to simply serve one another, to stoop and serve others in the body. But there's another layer to this, and we don't want to miss this, another layer to this foot washing, and you really see it starting in verse 7. When Jesus is going around washing feet, Peter says he wants to be completely washed from head to toe, and Jesus says to him, you are already clean, you only need to have your feet cleansed. And this is a kind of metaphor for the Christian life, a kind of metaphor, you could say, for justification. Uh, Peter's already been cleansed. He's already been declared clean by Jesus. He's already been accepted by Jesus. He's already been declared righteous. He's already been forgiven in principle. 
He will only now need to have his feet washed as he walks through this sinful, fallen world. And so he will stay in fellowship with Jesus as he confesses his sins, as he confesses those sins, Jesus will wash his feet and he can keep on walking in fellowship with Jesus. And so it is with us. Jesus washes our feet every time we gather and confess our sin. He is uh, confess our sin to him. He is continually cleansing us of sin, continually forgiving us. But here's the thing. It's not just that Jesus washes our feet. We're to wash one another's feet as well. Washing one another's feet is certainly service towards one another, humbling ourselves, stooping to serve. But it's more than that. It also means forgiving one another. We wash one another's feet when we forgive one another. In this way, we cleanse one another's feet. I can cleanse you, I can cleanse your feet when you confess sin to me and I declare you forgiven. And if I sin against you and I confess that sin, you can cleanse my feet by pronouncing forgiveness over me as well. This is how we cleanse one another's feet. We're constantly sinning against one another. Every family, every community, every fellowship is this way. What do we do? We've got to wash one another's feet. We wash one another's feet, and that's how we stay in fellowship with one another. We seek forgiveness. We seek that cleansing of our feet. We grant that forgiveness. We cleanse one another's feet. See, Monday Thursday is all about the church becoming this kind of community. The kind of community Jesus calls us to be. A community that fulfills this pattern of gathering in love, of serving and forgiving one another, of growing in our oneness as a body, while simultaneously finding the unique ways each of us as individuals can contribute to the good of the whole. This is the kind of community Jesus created on that Thursday night. Maundy Thursday is about the love Jesus has shown us. That love fills us up. And indeed, that love not only fills us up, it spills over the brim of our lives into the lives of others. Jesus has shared his love with each of us so we can in turn share that same love with each other. This is what it means to be the church. And this is why the church is the essential community. The church is not like any other institution. It's not like any other family. It's not like any other community. There's no other community on earth like this. Because this community, and this community alone, is uniquely formed and held together by the love of Jesus himself. A love he gives to each of us, and now a love we give to each other. Let's pray together.